this is going to sound weird, but I have always thought of myself as a gender neutral business professional, but I feel very feminine. I'm happy to stand up and say that I'm a woman. Do I think that women have to outperform their male counterparts? No, I think women have to outperform, period. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode of No Limits, how does a venture capitalist choose where to invest? Meet Juliette de Bobigny, a partner at one of the most influential venture capital firms in Silicon Valley, a place that invested in Google, Amazon, and more than 850 other successes. With her unique role, she's helping entrepreneurs recruit the best talent, focusing especially on women who right now get only a tiny fraction of the venture funding. I caught up with her in Sweden. Welcome to No Limits. Thank you for having me. You're the first female executive from the world of venture capital that we've had here on the show. And I really admire and find your background particularly interesting. So you studied business in the UK. I did. Started out at Procter & Gamble, spent many years in executive search. Yes. And now you are a senior partner at Kleiner Perkins. That's correct. Did you even know as a kid what venture capital was? Not at all. I mean, I grew up in um, the UK. My father was in the Royal Air Force. I fully expected that I would be doing something interesting. I knew that I wanted to travel the globe. Um, and then I had this incredible opportunity, a summer internship at Procter & Gamble. And it did two things. It opened my eyes to American business, um, distinct from British business at that time. This is going back to 1991. And it also opened me towards great company building. Um, Procter & Gamble, I think, has such a strong culture, and the durability of that culture and the people that make that culture really stuck with me. Is there a difference today? You said there was a difference back when you started between the UK and the US in business. Today, does that difference exist? You know, every country has nuances to its culture, but I would say when I left university, a celebration of entrepreneurial culture wasn't as significant as it is today. And it delights me when I return to the UK to see that great entrepreneurial spirit um, increasing, alive. um, And I think that's been the marked difference over the 23 years that I've been in business. So much of your career was also spent in executive search. And I think What a valuable skill set to understand what companies are looking for. What are the things that you found companies really desire in job candidates? It was an amazing training ground. And I think venture capitalists have to do two things really well. They have to pick great products, great market opportunities within that, and they have to great pick great people. Um, so for me, spotting talent, um, which is what I've made a career doing, I always look, first of all, for complete intellect, because as many have said, you can't coach height. Um, Sheer horsepower. Absolutely. You've also got to be able to have mental agility and resilience. You know, in a growth company, a startup company, whether it's a direct pivot or a small movement, you've got to be able to shift, you've got to be adaptable to change, and you've got to be able to have the resilience to that. And then you really have to have passion. We talk about wanting to change the world, which slightly has become a trite phrase, but that great desire and passion to do whatever it's going to take to build that enduring company. So those are the three things, the lessons that I learned from my career in executive search. 
How did you make your way from executive search to Kleiner Perkins? So this is a, a wonderful part of my career. I was working at a small boutique firm in 1996. I had just joined them called Ramsey Byrne Associates. And David Byrne founded the firm. And um, the firm were fortunate enough to recruit the Web 1.0 generation of CEOs. Jim Barksdale to Netscape, Meg Whitman to eBay, Dan Schulman to Priceline. And the beauty of that experience is... We were all flying blind. We didn't have a cohort of companies from which to recruit. So we were going to the Hasbro's, we were going to the FedEx's, we were going to the AT&T's to go and recruit spectacular talent. And I was at the epicenter together with my partners of recruiting the first generation of Web 1.0 leaders for firms like Kleiner Perkins. And I was standing around the lunch table at Kleiner Perkins one Monday talking to my now partners. And they suddenly looked at me and they said, you know, a about what's going on in our company is in a really deep way, probably more than we do. Why don't you join us? Why don't you be a partner sitting around the table with us? You're just going to be thinking about people every day. And I took a step back and I realized that this was one of those great opportunities of a lifetime. And um, did you immediately think that? Were you immediately like, this is the place? Um, I had a moment of panic because I was living in New York City. And, um, you know, I'm a London girl. So suddenly, California felt like an awfully long way, you know, from home. And yet at the same time, I knew that was where I needed to be. Um, I did have a panic because I respected my partner so much. And I thought, what happens if this doesn't work? Um, but the chemistry was so good. And we went on a journey to really understand my role. And what was important for me was to be able to be part of a team as the firm made the decisions. And, you know, 16 years later, it was a, a great bet. You also, with your work at Kleiner Perkins, run the Women's Leaders Program, which helps with mentoring. And you're mentoring young entrepreneurs and young women. There is this very clear and distinct fact that not as many women are able to get startup funding. There aren't as many women in your business. What do you think is the reason, the underlying reason for that? I don't think there's one reason. Um, it's a subject that um, pains me, hence I work on it very acutely. Um, we at Kleiner Perkins have done more to really keep the um, opportunity to hire great women partners into our firm, and 25% of our partners are women, and yet it's not enough. It should be at parity. Um, and if you look at where we're making investments, you know, we always talk about who's on the board, who's running the company, how can we make sure that there are enough women and underrepresented minorities to make good economic sense. And we start from that premise. In terms of mentoring and growing women and why they're not getting venture funding, it's a real problem in this industry. Um, the issue that troubles me right now is the following. Um, and perhaps this is not a popular point of view, but what I worry about is that so many women venture groups are being formed as individual cohorts that they are not giving themselves the opportunity to sit at the table. And like it or not, you are going to have to sit at the table with men. And so often I hear about women wanting just to have businesses that are funded just by women. Those businesses will not be able to maximize to the degree without great men. So what we need to do, we need to have great men mentoring great women. We need to have great women mentoring great men and women. And we need to make sure that we as venture capitalists hold ourselves accountable, hiring great women uh, into our firms and really looking and measuring the number of women-led companies that we are funding every year. It's not good. 
we just have to keep at it. That's a very interesting point, though, this idea that there's potentially a deficit there, that if you're only getting funding from a female-backed fund, you're missing a part of the equation that a guy is getting if he's getting backed by a fund that has men and women involved. Well, and it, 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 I come back to my own career. I was very privileged to be mentored by two exceptional men, Bill Campbell, who sadly is deceased, and my partner, John Dore. They always brought me into meetings and they said, this is my partner, Juliette de Bourbonny. Um, you know, I, I was not a peer to John Dore by any stretch of the imagination, but his confidence in me allowed me to punch above my weight. And that's what we have to do. We have to have men bringing women along. And as I say, women bringing women and men along um, before, you know, so, so that we can really change the dynamic here. Um, if the other thing that's a big issue is we've got to keep um, women and young girls in STEM professions. Um, that is a big issue. I have a 12-year-old right now, and I look at her opportunities for STEM education. They're good, but they're not as great as they could be. And so what we have to do um, is to really show young women fantastic role models of women, entrepreneurs, executives. Sadly, my generation feel too far removed from you know a 12-year-old's mind. So who are the great women in their 30s who can really make a difference? My daughter holds Emma Watson as her gold standard into what she wants to be. I want the Emma Watson who codes and will start a company. Those are the women that I would like to see. And that's why I try and mentor women in their 20s. It's very selfish. So I can pay it forward for my daughter. <laughs> what do you think is the biggest misconception? People coming to you looking for advice, looking for feedback on their company, hoping for funding? I don't think that you can really generalize, but I do think that there is a little bit of a herd mentality sometimes. And so, you know, the amount of, you know, times I would hear we're the Uber of, or, you know, sort of we're basically taking different models and applying them to different sectors. And that's why it's refreshing and why I travel to different parts of the world. Because first of all, you see there's so much innovation happening outside of Silicon Valley, even though still Silicon Valley has such incredible infrastructure to support an entrepreneur. There are amazing things happening in Berlin, for example, which is a city that I'm getting to know based on one of our great investments, a company called Go Euro, um, where the entrepreneur took himself there without speaking German and knowing no one because it was a low-cost place to go and build a company. Um, so I think boldness is really important. And the mistake that is made is just trying to take a company that has already been created and then put a new label on it and apply it. It arguably will never be the opportunity that they hope for. Playing it too safe. Correct. More No Limits on the way, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of today's episode, Blue Apron. Incredible ingredients make incredible meals. That's why Blue Apron partners with a community of over 150 artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and responsible ranchers across the United States. Thanks to these partnerships, Blue Apron is able to deliver fresh, seasonal, perfectly portioned ingredients with easy-to-follow recipes right to your door for under $10 per meal. Log in each week to select the recipes you want to cook or let Blue Apron choose based on your food preferences. With Blue Apron, there's no weekly commitment, so you get the deliveries when you want them. 
Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. When you cook with Blue Apron, you bring the best ingredients to your table while developing a sustainable food system for future generations. Join the growing community of Blue Apron home chefs today and get your first three Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping at blueapron.com slash no limits. That's blueapron.com slash no limits. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. When you look at your own career, I assume that you've negotiated for your salary a handful of times at this point. How do you think of those negotiations? And walk us through, if there is one that you can remember, walk us through the specifics of how you did it. So I'm, you know, I'm quite unemotional about negotiation because I do it every single day, whether it's negotiating with an executive to join a company, whether it's, you know, negotiating about investing in a company, we're always in the business of negotiation. Let me perhaps put negotiating with my children at the top of that list. (laughs) Um, You know, and so I take a very fact-based, unemotional point of view, and I always have done. And um, I really do a balance sheet, honestly. Um, This is my worth. Um, This is where I'm still growing. Um, This is where I think market is. And this is why I deserve above market. Um, I have a philosophy, which is I don't want to hire people at the mean compensation level. I want to hire outperformers. Now, at the same time, you also have to be realistic about the environment in which you're in. And I'll often say to an executive when I'm recruiting them to go and run a company, listen, imagine your compensation is exposed in the S1, which it will be. How do you feel about that? How will your direct reports feel about that? Can you look at parity? How does it fit in you know, with the overall value set of the company, what are the natural constraints, you know? And so you have to be very aware of that. And I think that as you negotiate, being able to say, I fully understand the environment in which we are in. However, this is my worth. And given these natural constraints, and that's where I go to a performance-based. I think any person who is negotiating, if they're prepared to put themselves on the line for performance, um, that works well. Um, You know, when I took my first job, um, I wanted to make a move out of consumer packaged goods into executive search. It was really hard to get started. I basically went and said, I will work for free for a month. Um, My parents were completely horrified. Um, But I believe that at the end of this, you will find me so valuable, you will hire me. And I've always sort of kept that philosophy. Did you work for free for a month? I did work for free for a month. At your first executive search. I did. How did you know at that moment, you were fresh out of school, really, at that point. How did you realize that it was so important to you to be an executive search that you were willing to do it for free? So um, as I've said earlier, I'm a huge believer in role models. And I think that the more women that can speak out, talk about their careers, talk about their vulnerabilities, talk about how hard it is, but also how much pleasure and impact they derive from it, um, the better. And early on in my career, I met this amazing woman called Victoria Wall, who happened to have gone to my university. And she came and spoke um, to us um, in our graduating class. It was the week before we graduated about her career in management consulting and executive search. And I looked and I said, I want to be like her. I want to do what she does every day. And even though I was going to Procter & Gamble at the time, I sort of tucked that away. And she's a dear friend to this day. And, um, you know, having that role model was so critical. And that's why I think we've just got to do more. I love that story because when I, so I started my career in investment banking 
And I knew that I wanted to pursue journalism at some point. And my mom's advice, my mom's a journalist, her advice to me when I was looking for journalism jobs was to pitch myself, obviously, which is what I did. But she said, don't tell them right away that you'll write for them for free. But if they still aren't letting you come in and write, offer to write them for them for free. Sometimes you have to put yourself out there. I always say you can take risk, big risk at the beginning of your career. And when you have achieved enough success that you're not afraid to take that risk. Um, it's the middle part that is hard for people. And, um, and that's why what I try and do every year on my birthday, which happens to be in August, I take a step back and I do my own 360 assessment on myself and, you know, really sort of imagine, okay, what am I doing well? What am I not doing well? Where do I want to go this year? And I think being very aware of the journey of one's career and the arc of one's career is also really important. Where do you see yourself in your career? You know, I've had the incredible opportunity through a platform at Kleiner Perkins to pursue things that I really care about. Um, so the first one was um, my partner, John Dorr, introduced me to Bono 10 years ago and Bobby Shriver, and I became one of the founding board members of Product Red. And that has been a 10-year journey um, where I was able to put into practice a lot of advice that I was dispensing every day um, and really support the evolution and the build of that company to, you know, generating over $300 million to the global fund. Um, that has been an emotional um, and wonderfully impactful experience. And, um, you know, the other thing I learned every day is you get a great CEO as quickly as you can. And Deb Dugan has done an amazing job with that. That opened my eyes to, I always want to have purpose um, beyond my day job. My other night job is um, I'm the co-founder of an organization called Beyond Type 1 which uh, is working to raise money to find a cure for type 1 diabetes, which is a little-known but highly impactful disease. Uh, Nick Jonas is one of my co-founders. Um, we're 15 months into this journey. We have an amazing CEO, and we're making great strides in this area. So having the opportunity to have the philanthropic angle in a meaningful way while building a business as a startup was very exciting. And then two other areas. Um, the KP Women Leaders Program was something I felt very very strongly about creating that uh, spun out of our KP Fellows program, which was taking the best and brightest college graduates and putting them into startups. And then we really put a great focus on women. And then the other thing that I'm cooking up right now is really thinking about how to get more girls to study STEM professions and then how to get them to remain in STEM professions. Because that scissor effect, which I've written about in, in the past, that happens at um, either sort of the early 20s or early 30s, where 50% of women typically leave those professions is something that we have to solve if we're going to get more amazing technical women CEOs like Diane Green at Google, Marissa Maya and others, Susan Wojcicki, um, in addition to the incredible business leaders that we have out there. Do you feel like the expectation of women is stronger or that women must outperform their male counterparts? You know, um, this is going to sound weird, but I have always thought of myself as a gender-neutral business professional, but I feel very feminine. I'm happy to stand up and say that I'm a woman. Do I think that women have to outperform their male counterparts? No. I think women have to outperform, period. You know, it's the way, you know, I was, you know, I played lacrosse very competitively when I was in high school and college. When you get on the field, you play your best. You have to outperform. You have to train. Um, you have to prepare. So I actually don't think about it women against men I think about it that I have to. Juliette de Bobigny has to come 
onto the field and she has to play her best game. And win. And win. Toughest lesson you've had to learn in your career. Oh. Um, you know, that you can hit bumps along the road. Um, and so, as you can tell, I'm organized, I prepare, I'm driven. Um, but in 2012, I had my anus horribilis and I had, went through a messy divorce. I ended up in the ICU with bilateral pneumonia and my son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes all in the first three months of the year. And I remember thinking, this is more than I can bear. Um, and it was really, really hard. And it was hard on many levels. It was hard emotionally. I didn't have any family close by. And unfortunately, I'm the sort of person that doesn't really talk about um, the stuff that is going on in their life. And I so enjoyed um, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Option B, because, you know, and she's a close friend and, and went through that journey with me. But there were very few people who I could share that because I was too proud. And so the hardest lesson that I've had to bear is you actually can't work your way through everything. Um, life is not perfect. Um, and sometimes you have to be vulnerable and say, this really sucks. And, um, you know, I am going to evolve. And I will say today, um, my son is in good health. We manage his diabetes. I am happier and healthier than I have ever been. But it has been a journey for me to go on, and it's probably made me a better manager and leader and daughter and partner and friend. That's a very powerful message. And it's probably because you're on the other side of it to some extent and you've learned from it, it's so much easier to share it. There are definitely road bumps. There definitely are. And I think it comes to the lessons that we all try and tell our children, which is to have great faith in who you are and who you stand for. I tell my children, there are three things I expect for you. Work hard, tell the truth, and be kind. You have to love yourself. But you can't tell a child that if you don't take that into your heart. And so that and having really great girlfriends and a great family, that helps all the time. Where did you learn those lessons, the idea of being kind, working hard? Well, you know, it was probably my upbringing. Um, but, you know, you go through life and, you, you know, I think we're all fortunate to be exposed to amazing people. And this is the benefit of role models. And I have sort of taken nuggets away through the years from wonderful women and men that have shared things with me. And, um, and I tried to distill it down one day to my children. I thought, I can't give them my top 10 list, um, but what are the th three things I value? Um, work ethic will really get you everywhere in life. And, you know, as we know, there are going to be bumps. And so you've got to be prepared to, to work hard. Um, telling the truth is everything. Um, if you can go to sleep at night knowing that you have told the truth, life is going to get so much better. And be kind really means be kind to yourself, but be kind to those around you. And I think it, particularly in today's environment, you know, being kind and showing kindness um, is a really important quality and trait. What is the worst advice you've received in your career? You know, I feel as though I have always been the beneficiary of great advice, but I will tell you something that I have observed, which perhaps is more appropriate for my generation rather than a millennial or a Gen Z generation, which is the following. Meg Whitman and John Donahoe both, um, Meg said when she was coming up to the end of her tenure at eBay that you should really leave being a CEO after 10 years. And John Donahoe, who's just joined ServiceNow, who I admire tremendously, you know, always talks about repotting. 
And I do think that sometimes when you're building a company or running a company or when you're in an organization, there is a tendency perhaps to stay too long. Now, what is too long? I don't want to put an archetypal time frame on it, but it comes back to my sort of quest to take time every year to sort of say, where am I going and what's my purpose and how well am I doing? And I think the worst advice one could get, though I have never been given, is to say, just stay for the good of the company. And if you get a great opportunity, you know, and you've contributed, it's okay to take that job, to go and move on. And I think that sometimes people tend to get stuck. And, you know, being stuck doesn't do it for anyone. How do you get unstuck? By challenging yourself, by actually surrounding yourself with great people. I'm a big believer, you know, when I advise people about, you know, joining companies, go for growth, go for working for those smartest people. Go, you know, I always say it's the, you know, go and work for someone like Jeff Bezos. Not everyone is going to be like Jeff Bezos, but that is the aspiration you should have. And by the way, seek feedback. You know, do not be afraid of honest feedback. Um, you know, my partner, Kleiner Perkins, being Gordon, always does spot reviews with people, which I imagine are quite terrifying. <laughs> but at least you always know where you stand. And so I think seeking honest feedback um, and then challenging yourself and then also knowing where your role is. I always say to people, what's your highest and best use of your time? And if you have reached that ceiling in that company and you cannot see the growth to go on to the next level, then you should move on. What's your favorite interview question? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I have many, um, but I always say... Um, Best day at work, what have you really contributed? Or a different way of that is, what is the legacy that you have left on that organization? Because I want to see what has someone actually contributed, and then that typically tells me what, where they're being drawn to. Juliette de Bobigny, thank you so much. Thank you. And now it's time for our weekly No Limits Entrepreneur, where we feature one of the members of our No Limits community who's creating their own roadmap for success and pursuing a passion. And this week's featured entrepreneur was nominated by No Limits listener Grace Dragic. Hannah Choi studied economics in college at Penn State. She got a Bachelor of Science there. She used to be an associate at Goldman Sachs, which a job I know quite well, did it myself back in the day. She left the job, which was both high paying but also stressful, to pursue her passion, designing, crafting, and event planning and created the company Little Confetti Events. It's a full-service event planning and design company that specializes in children's events and Korean first birthday parties. Big No Limits shout-out to Hannah Choi, the founder and event designer at Little Confetti Events, which she founded with her childhood friend in 2014. It's located right here in the New York City area. Congratulations, Hannah. Thanks so much, Grace, for reaching out to us. I love hearing from all of you. And if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send me your nomination to no limits with rjpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. It really does help to spread the word. And you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. And join the conversation using the hashtag No Limits. Quite original, I know. And thanks so much to the team here at ABC who makes this happen week after week. Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Annie Osakwe, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Hecht, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones here at ABC Radio. Have a great week, everyone. Take care.
Today's episode of No Limits was brought to you by Blue Apron. Incredible ingredients make incredible meals. That's why Blue Apron partners with a community of over 150 artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and responsible ranchers across the United States. Thanks to these partnerships, Blue Apron is able to deliver fresh, seasonal, perfectly portioned ingredients with easy-to-follow recipes right to your door for under $10 per meal. Log in each week to select the recipes you want to cook or let Blue Apron choose based on your food preferences. With Blue Apron, there's no weekly commitment, so you get the deliveries when you want them. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. When you cook with Blue Apron, you bring the best ingredients to your table while developing a sustainable food system for future generations. Join the growing community of Blue Apron home chefs today and get your first three Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping at blueapron.com slash no limits. That's blueapron.com slash no limits. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.